Go ahead and grab your seats. I want to welcome you to Sojourn. Uh, my name is Matt Heron. I'm on, on staff here, and we are thrilled to have you with us. It's a sunny summer Sunday, and um, we're uh, really glad that you, <clears throat> you're here with us. Uh, if this happens to be your first time uh, or you're just checking us out, uh, there's, there's uh, a few cards in the chair back in front of you, <clears throat> and the blue one is probably the one that you want to start with. It just says, let's connect on the top. There's a QR, on the co- QR code on the back. Uh, you're free to use that. But if you want to fill it out, uh, you can drop it in the giving boxes, or you can take it out to the welcome table uh, after the service, and somebody there would love to, uh, love to uh, meet you and uh, put a face with a name. And um, if you're up for that step, uh, take advantage of that. We have a little gift for you if you want to do that. <clears throat> uh, the announcements we want to share. First one, uh, we are in full swing, 100 parties in 100 days. Uh, if you're not, uh, uh, if you haven't been around our, our church too long, um, he, here's the logic with 100 parties in 100 days. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit shows up. That's what we celebrate on Pentecost Sunday. Last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. The Spirit shows up in Acts chapter 2. And by the end of Acts chapter 2, um, the people of God are uh, meeting together in each other's homes. Uh, it says they have good favor with the community. And so it's like the Spirit of God comes into the people of God at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 in a way that the Spirit has never done before. And by the end of the chapter, they're, they're out, they're celebrating with each other, they're celebrating with their neighbors, uh, they're interacting with their community. And so over the last few years, we've done 100 parties in 100 days. And not that we expect everybody to go to 100 parties, though you're free to do that if you want to. Uh, we're really trying to do that just as a collective, uh, a group of people, and just opening up our homes, meeting in parks, uh, just trying to find creative ways to get together uh, and, and to be together. And uh, this past week, we had a few of them uh, already happen, and uh, there's more to come, and there's information there uh, in your bulletin about that if you want to be, uh, if you want to jump in and be part of uh, the 100 parties. And if you don't want to sign up for one, uh, you don't have to sign up for one. You can just have parties. like that. We, we want to respond to the good news of the coming of the Spirit uh, the same way they did in Acts chapter 2 uh, by being together. Uh, so take advantage of that. <clears throat> the other thing you may have noticed on your way in is that there's a tent in the foyer right outside these doors, and there's a table with uh, a lot of uh, information on it. Uh, and that is, we're, we're doing something this summer that we've never done before called Sojourn in the Wild. And I'm going to give you the, the brief backstory on Sojourn in the Wild, too. Um, so, Sojourn in the Wild is, is uh, the fruit of a question that started to bubble up a few years ago. Uh, I, I read, uh, it was actually in the Atlantic, uh, they referenced a, um, a professor from the University of Kansas. And this professor had done, I think he had done his doctoral work trying to answer the question of how long does it take to make a friend? And uh, you can go look this up, but he, he concluded that it took 200 hours to make a good friend. And, and you realize like, oh, wow, okay, when, when I'm in my 20s or when I was in college, like 200 hours, like that's not that hard to come up with 200 hours. Um, but as you get older, it gets harder. And so uh, the, the, the question started to become, how, how could Sojourn Church help this, how, how could Sojourn help the Sojourn family reach 200 hours with each other? We, we're not going to be able to get that all in one, in one chunk, but what, what are ways that we could advance that and increase the number of hours together? <clears throat> and so uh, we're giving this a try. And out at that table, there's some information about the trips that we're offering this summer. They are outdoor, uh, out, in, out in creation. Uh, there's going to be a, 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 an adventure component, a fun component. Uh, but our, our, our deeper desire is that we're actually getting connected to each other. 
And, uh, and over the course of a few days of a hiking trip or a camping trip, you, you, maybe you've been on some of those and, and you know how, uh, how relationally rich those can be. And so that's, that's our hope. Uh, there's information at the table. Dave Ballard is uh, our staff person overseeing that. Uh, so you can ask him any questions you want. He'll be at the table uh, after the service. And then if you have no other reason, there's beef jerky and trail mix at the table. So stop and, and get, some of, get some of that. <clears throat> Uh, um, we, we have a prayer retreat uh, this coming uh, Saturday. So this Wednesday, we have a prayer night here at 7 o'clock. But then Saturday morning, uh, the, the prayer retreat is taking on a little bit of a different shape. And what's going to happen is at, at 8.30, uh, the doors will be open here. There will be some coffee and some other resources. Uh, but it's going to function as an, as an open building. So from 8.30 to 11 on Saturday morning, uh, the church is open. And if you want to come pray, uh, sometimes finding a quiet place to do that can be complicated. Uh, sometimes it's helpful to pray in a place like this that maybe uh, stirs some of the emotions of, of corporate worship. Um, and so this Saturday, the building is open, and we invite you to take advantage of that. Uh, and then our last announcement is Barb Jordan. Barb, you want to come on up? <coughs> Sorry. Um, so if you're on our mailing list, then you, you know uh, that uh, you got a communication about two weeks ago uh, about uh, Barb uh, had some words from me and some words from Barb. And we were just sharing with you about a transition that's happening on our staff team. Uh, Barb, for the last 16 months, has been serving in the role of uh, adult discipleship and community groups. And, you know, the, the, the story uh, is that Barb came in at the beginning of 2022, and uh, we were living in the aftermath of COVID. And one of the, the hardest uh, things to, uh, to experience from the aftermath of COVID was the destruction that a lot of our community groups experienced. And some of our community groups survived and actually thrived uh, through, uh, through COVID, but a lot of our other community groups did, didn't. And uh, they became sometimes quite complicated and, and difficult. And um, by the end of 2021, in a lot of ways, there were, uh, our, our community group ministry, which is essential to what we do here, was kind of hanging by a thread. And so in the interview process with Barb, uh, along with the other things that were being talked about, uh, the, kind of the primary question was, Barb, are you up for taking the, uh, you know, the, the monumental task of trying to bring our community groups back from the, from the dead? Uh, and Barb was, was willing to do that. And uh, here we are you know, in June of 2023, and it's just been uh, a phenomenal victory to see the amount of progress that's happened uh, in our community groups. And, and over the course of this year, we think we had th 13 community groups uh, that met over this school year. And that is a huge bounce back. Um, and it's uh, for those of us who kind of lost our community groups over COVID, um, it was a, a time of healing and a time of, of, of you know, relational connection. And for the community groups that were already meeting to just take another step forward in their development together. And Barb led the charge on all of that for us. And, uh, and so we want to we wanna thank her and celebrate that big win. That's been huge. Um, uh, but Barb is stepping off of our staff. And, uh, and so we, we uh, I think I said this in the email, but man, one of the things that I will always remember about Barb was how, how passionate and clear Barb's desire was for God's name to be praised and for Sojourn, for Sojourn Church to succeed. And that just like oozed out of her all the time. Our whole staff felt it all the time. And uh, that's just, that's a, it's a, quite a gift to the team when you have someone who is just saying like, okay, you know, how, how can we make this go? And so um, here we are, it's June and Barb's uh, transitioning off staff. Her email is still active and it will be for a while. Uh, so if you know Barb, feel free to call her or, or you know, grab coffee with her or whatever. Uh, but you're also free to email her and just thank her for the huge role that she's played uh, over these months in bringing back a ministry 
that is, man, so essential to what we do. And so thank you, Barb, uh, for all that effort and work. Uh, it's super meaningful to all of us, especially those of us uh, that are in a community group. So in Sojourn style, would you please stand, extend a hand as a sign of blessing over Barb, and we're going to pray for her. God, thank you so much for, um, for Barb Jordan, for the, the, the woman that you made her to be, and for all the gifts that you've given her, uh, for the creative eyes that she looks through as she sees your church and this community and ministry opportunities. God, we thank you for the fruit of her labor uh, over these 16 months of putting a lot of time and effort into bringing this essential ministry uh, back to life. And God, we, we celebrate that and we thank you for, uh, for that. God, we, we entrust Barb to you for this next chapter of her life. Um, we, again, thank you for all the gifts that she has, and I pray that you'll give her clarity on how she wants to use those to, to bless others, to move your kingdom forward. Um, and we thank you for the, the season of time that we had her here with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. Let's give Barb a hand. Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> Some of you know, please, please remain standing. <laughs> we have our scripture reading now, uh, Julie Brinks is uh, going to read for us. It's Matthew 5, 1 through 16. Listen as I read. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Julie. Uh, okay, so we, um, in, in the, from the meta perspective, we, we are in a series in the Gospel of, of Matthew, um, but it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. So uh, the last time that we were in a text in the Gospel of Matthew was uh, the Sunday before Easter, and then we had Easter Sunday, and then we had a four-week, part, a four-part series called Finding Faith. And then we had a Value Sunday. And then the last two Sundays, we had some, some special speakers uh, that were able to join us here. So it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. So here, here's what we're going to do to try to get back uh, on, on, the, on the same page. Um, we're going to do a, a lead-up. What, what happened in those first four chapters of Matthew 
that bring us to chapter five. I'm going to do that uh, just a kind of an overview quickly, quick flyover. Um, we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, which, which is Matthew uh, five through seven. And then we're going to do an overview of the Beatitudes, which maybe you've heard of those before, but they're the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter five. Um, and then I'm going to close with just a couple takeaways. So that's the plan. Uh, let, let's, let's do it. When we think about that, what's, what's going on in the Gospel of Matthew that gets us up to chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, we, we said this on the opening uh, Sunday of this series. Matthew's goal throughout this Gospel is for us to worship Jesus as King and to follow him as disciples. If you think of chapter 1, verse 1, it starts off with the book of the Genesis of Jesus. It says genealogy, but it's the genesis. It's the beginning. Uh, that's the actual word, is the beginning uh, of Jesus' story, of his uh, family tree. And there's a tracing of how, like this, this history of, of Jesus. And then in, ver- in chapter 28, the last verse of Matthew, we're told that he, Jesus will be with us even to the end of the age. And so it starts with Jesus. It ends with Jesus. There's a recognition that it all hangs on Jesus. Matthew's gospel is revealing to us who Jesus is, and his goal is for us to worship Jesus as king and to follow him as disciples. So here's the summary of those four chapters uh, that lead us up to this moment. Chapter 1, that genealogy the genesis of Jesus. And, you know, uh, it was actually really fun uh, to spend some time on that genealogy. It was also really fun to have the scripture reader have to read the genealogy because there's a lot of hard, hard words uh, in, in, the, in, the, in those verses. Uh, but to just be able to see why Matthew included who Matthew included uh, in the story of Jesus. And he grounds us, he roots us in the fact that he is not afraid of the Old Testament. Matthew is not trying to disconnect from the Old Testament. He's actually trying to connect to the Old Testament. He's reaching back and saying, you know, all those promises and all that activity of God and his people through the pages of the Old Testament, that's leading up to right now. That's leading up to this this Jesus. And so chapter 1 gives us a genealogy. Chapter 2, we learn about Jesus' difficult and his dangerous uh, childhood. So in that chapter, we find out that Jesus uh, ended up as a refugee in Egypt and then when he came back, he, he had to settle, in a, his family had to settle in a different place, and they end up uh, in Nazareth. And so that's in chapter 2. Uh, chapter 3, we meet John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, and we, see, we hear Jesus' first statement in the Gospel of Matthew, and then Jesus gets baptized. Uh, and so just a few thoughts from chapter 3. Uh, we get Jesus' first recorded words in verse 15. And his first words are in relation to, he goes to John to get baptized, John the Baptist. He goes to get baptized, and John the Baptist is like, no, no, no. I don't baptize you. Jesus, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. And it's a, it's, it's a tip. It's, it's a reveal that, that um, this subject of righteousness is going to be something that Matthew is quite interested in throughout his gospel. He references that word more than any of the other gospels. It's a f- kind of a focal point for Matthew is to relate Jesus and his work to righteousness. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the word righteous. Um, if you grew up in the church, uh, you might have some opinions. If you grew up in the 60s and the 70s, you might have some opinions. Uh, that was righteous. Um, but but uh, a lot of people that grew up in church, when they hear the word righteous or righteousness, they primarily think about an ethical or a moral side to the word righteous. 
Is that right or is that wrong? And that, that is a, that's a correct understanding of that word. It has a moral, ethical side to it. So when the Bible talks about righteousness, it is talking about doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing. But that's not all it's talking about. There's also a relational side to the word righteous. And so just like, is that right or wrong? There's also a sense in which it's asking, are we okay? Are you, are you and I all right? Is everything good between us? And so it's not just, did you do good things? But it's, are you good with the right person? Namely, the God of heaven. And, and ultimate righteousness is a righteousness that is, you have been made right with the God of heaven. And that's intensely relational. Yes, it has a moral, ethical side, but it is intensely relational. And Jesus' first words include the word righteousness. It's a little bit of a tip. Matthew's including that phrase so that we can start to associate that idea with the person and work of Jesus. And then also in chapter 3, uh, man, when Jesus gets baptized, the last verse of chapter 3, he comes up out of the water and just, you know, the Son of God, Jesus, is baptized and the voice of the Father from heaven speaks while the Spirit descends. And maybe you know today is Trinity Sunday and this passage is a beautiful Trinitarian passage where we have the Son of God in the water, we have the Father of God speaking and we have the, the Spirit of God descending like a dove. But the Father says over the Son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my son. I love him to death and I am so pleased with him. And so that's what happens in chapter three, this incredible declaration. When you get to chapter four, I want to think about this in two parts. First, you know, Jesus gets baptized at the end of chapter three. The father says, I love him like I can't tell you. I, I'm so pleased with him. And you're like, all right, what's going to happen now? This is going to be, this is going to be awesome. Up and to the right. Well, no. The first part of chapter 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness and he faces intense temptation. He's fasting. Satan looks at him and thinks he's vulnerable and he endures uh, all of these temptations. Thankfully, Jesus passes the test with flying colors and every single time he is presented with a shortcut or a, a, a distortion, uh, he, he trusts God uh, at, at every turn. And so he, he endures the temptation. And then in the second half of Matthew, we kind of have this pivot where Jesus goes public. So, so yes, in chapter 3, Jesus was baptized. But, but here is where his ministry really turns public. In verses 12 through 25, uh, you, can, you can read about that. But the key verse is Matthew 4, 17, where Jesus is, it's like his, his message is summarized by Matthew. And this is what it is. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the rest of Matthew is kind of working out that idea. What does it mean to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand? And then two verses later, as soon as Jesus says that, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, the next thing you do, he, he runs into some people and he says, follow me. He says, align your life to me, F follow me. And so that Sunday, you know, we asked the question, have you responded to that call? Because yes, 2,000 years ago, Jesus asked specific fishermen to follow him, but that call also is on the table for you and me, uh, a call from Jesus to, to follow him. And so have you responded to that? M more on this in just a second. So as we end chapter 4, Jesus is offering a, king, a kingdom in which he is the king, and he's offering it to any and all who will come. And so that's what we kind of, the gist of what we get in those first four chapters. And that brings us right up to chapter five. Now chapter five through chapter seven 
is, is, is what a lot of people would refer to as Jesus' greatest written sermon. And so, um, of course, Jesus said a lot of things that are not recorded in the Bible. Uh, but of the, of the sermons that we get recorded from him, uh, a lot of Bible scholars would agree that this is the greatest, this is the greatest sermon. Uh, one, one New Testament scholar says, uh, and historian, he says that these three chapters um, are the most studied text over the last 2,000 years. He says the case could be made that if you tallied up all the work that's been done on the Bible, there is no passage in the Bible that has been studied more than these three chapters. So we're going to take our time through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're going to take our time through uh, the first part of chapter 5, and we're going to take our, part, our, our time through uh, the rest of chapter 5, 6, and 7. And um, I guess I, I should maybe say that th these three chapters are, are, are one of the primary reasons why preaching through the Gospel of Matthew was on the to-do list. Uh, because just a little history, um, you know, a couple years ago, when we were still dealing with the aftermath of COVID, uh, you know, it hit me one day, and I was like, man, like, the local church needs to go soak in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, we're a mess. Like, it was scary, and it was hard, but it was embarrassing. Like, the way that we were navigating relationships with each other and relationships with the world, it's like the Sermon on the Mount has something to say about this. And it's like we all forgot what the Sermon on the Mount had to say. And I remember saying to someone back, this would have been 2021, like, I think we just need to get to the Sermon on the Mount and just stay there for a few years and just let this, like, soak in our bones because we are in desperate need of remembering the invitation that Jesus gives us on how to navigate uh, the world. And so these three chapters are kind of front and center uh, in our vision of, of, of preaching through this, this, uh, this gospel. So we might wear those pages out on, on your Bible. Um, a, a friend of mine, Bart, uh, Bart Dembor, memorized the uh, Sermon on the Mount, uh, all three chapters, every, every word, pretty phenomenal. So you could, you could do that if you want to do that. Um, so when we were in Matthew chapter 4, uh, and we were talking about Jesus' call in, in, in verse 17 that I just mentioned a second ago. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then a couple verses later, follow me. When, when we were in that text a few months ago, I tried to suggest that Jesus is saying that his kingdom is a whole new ballgame. That that, that's, that's, the, that's the essence of repent, the kingdom of, of God is at hand. That, that there's something new that we don't, understand. It's, it's bigger than us. It's grander than us. And we are going to need to reorient our life to live in that kingdom, to function in that kingdom. The, the only way to respond to the news of Jesus is to repent and follow him with everything you have. And, and this word repent, this word repent means to turn. That's like the technical definition. But it's this sense in which you're actually allowing Jesus to remake you. You're allowing Jesus to, to change you all the way down to the deepest levels. Or, or another way, to, to tear you down all the way to the studs. And then to rebuild you, to remake you, to, to change your agenda, to reorient the desires of your heart. You know, the idea that Jesus would look at someone and say, follow me, that word has action built right into it. If you follow someone, you're not in the same place tomorrow that you were in today. You, you actually, you're moving with them. You're growing and you're changing. And when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he says to those, those uh, fishermen, follow me, he's saying to truly repent, to truly follow Jesus is to give up your agenda for your life. 
It's to let him take you all the way down and remake you. Change your heart. Change your desires. Change your priorities. It's allow him to, act, to, allow him to actually direct your life. Well, I think you could make the case that that statement in chapter 4, verse 17 is what the rest of Matthew is trying to um, unpack, trying to explain, like trying to reveal to us, and he starts it right here with this incredible sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and this is the passage where we find out what life with Jesus is supposed to look like. We, we find out if you let Jesus remake you, this is what it's going to look like. This is how you're going to move in the world. This is how you're going to treat other people. This is how you're going to treat your enemies. This is how you're going to treat people who disagree with you. Can you see why COVID brought a lot of these things to the forefront? And it's like, I don't think we remember Matthew 5 through 7. There's an invitation here for us to be reformed and remade, to actually recognize that this is what life with Jesus is supposed to look like. You know, the gospel presents Jesus as God in the flesh. It presents Jesus as Lord. It presents him as Savior. But the gospels also present Jesus as a teacher. And if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, you heard it read just a second ago, it says that he went up on the mountain and then sat down. Now, now culturally speaking, this is not insignificant. This is what an authoritative teacher would do. They would kind of get to a little bit of a higher spot and then they would sit down. And in their culture, the teacher sat down and the listeners usually stood up. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's the help of people falling asleep. And we could try that. We could try that here because that, 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 might, that might be worth our, our effort. Um, but that's what Jesus does. In verse 1, he, he positions himself as a respected, authoritative teacher. Jesus has just taken the seat of a guy who has something significant to say. And boy, does he ever. And it's helpful, I think, to remember this. Jesus, it's like Jesus and, and Matthew, as he's putting the gospel together, it's like Matthew is building off of the declaration that God the Father just made over Jesus. God the Father says, this is my son, I love him to death, and I am so pleased with him. I am so proud of him. Well, like a chapter later, that very person sits down to teach? You think maybe Matthew's saying like, oh, 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 this is the one that the Father loves. This is the one that the Father is pleased with. Maybe we should listen. Maybe we should tune in. Maybe he does have some authoritative teaching that we should hear. You know, we're actually going to run into this language in a few years when we get to Matthew 17. Um, and it's something called the, the, uh, the, the transfiguration. And in, in, in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus uh, reveals his glory in a unique way. And this same language shows up, but with an additional phrase. The father says, this is my son, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased listen to him. That's right. Listen to him. And it's like Matthew almost wants us in that posture already. By the time Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 rolls around, he's like, he just sat down as a teacher, like, pay attention. Pay attention. This is God's beloved son. He is so pleased with him. Let's listen to him. So Jesus starts his great Sermon on the Mount then. We're, we're getting smaller here. So from the Sermon on the Mount now to these first verses uh, that are often referred to as 
the Beatitudes. And we're going to sink our teeth into this for this Sunday and then the next eight weeks to follow. And so we're taking our time through, through this section, uh, the Beatitudes. And if your Bible has subtitles, uh, after verse 1 of chapter 5, right before verse 2, your Bible might say the Beatitudes. My, my, my Bible does say that. And so we're going to focus on the Beatitudes. Uh, but it would be a really legitimate question if you said uh, Beatitudes, what, what is that? What, what are Beatitudes? Are they attitudes? And it's like, no, it's spelled different. Attitudes has, I guess, three T's. Uh, this only has two T's. How many T's? Yeah, two. Um, and it, so it's, it's not, it has nothing to do with the word attitude, um, but yet there are these essential pieces of the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually how Jesus chooses to, to, to start it. What is a beatitude? Well, a beatitude, what you could define it as, is the happy, uh, those who are full, those who are fortunate, those who are well-off, those who are flourishing. Uh, the word flourishing might be the best word that we've got. Um, but what, what you say, where did, the, where did the word beatitude come from? Well, I, let, let me give you a little background on this because I think, I think it will be helpful. Uh, a beatitude, it's not, it's not an attitude, but we get that word from a, a Latin word. And if you trace the translation of the Bible, you know that Latin pay, played a pretty big part uh, in the translation of the Bible after the original languages. And we get this, this, this Latin word, beatus, and it becomes beatitude. But it is trying to communicate the original Greek word, which is makarios. Makarios. That's the Greek word. If you look at your Bible and you see at the end of verse, at the beginning of verse three, beginning of verse four, beginning of verse five, all the way down there, you see the word in my Bible, the way it's set up, it, it, every verse starts a new line. So it says, bless, 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 bless. That word blessed is makarios. It's the Greek word makarios. And in Latin, it's translated as beatus and beatus becomes beatitude. And so that, that's how that word shows up. And obviously it is just hung around even though we don't use it <clears throat> in our English language. But what that means then is that these first verses of Matthew chapter 5 are a statement of blessing. That that's what Jesus is actually declaring here in Matthew chapter 5. And it is very common in the ancient world that a great teacher would do something like this. That they would give their statement of blessing. In other words, they would describe what a true flourishing life looks like. Or you could say, what true happiness looks like. That is literally what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, if you look at verse 2, flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are those who mourn. That, that Jesus is suggesting that this is a happy life. This is a full life. This is a flourishing life. And one New Testament scholar says that happy gets us closer to what Jesus was saying than blessed does because blessed sounds like a divine stamp of approval in our current cultural moment. And so maybe you're on social media and you're familiar with the hashtag blessed, hashtag blessed, and it's like, what, you know, what do they mean by hashtag blessed? I mean, they're riding around in a Ferrari, like that's hashtag blessed. Like what, what, you know, what, what does hashtag blessed mean? And in our culture, this word blessed carries a lot of uh, kind of baggage with it. But even happiness is too weak of a word. 
And so uh, uh, you know, a, a New Testament scholar named Jonathan Pennington, who has spent a lot of time on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be standing on Jonathan Pennington's shoulders uh, over these weeks ahead, you know, he suggests that happiness is, is better than blessed, but it's still not quite good enough. And so he likes the word flourishing as the best English option we got. And so this is what he says. This is the problem. In most other languages, there are two words that describe two different things. There's a word that describes divine favor, and then there's a word that, dev- that describes a state of happiness or a state of flourishing. In English, we're using one word to do both of those things. And so when we say blessed, you kind of have to ask, wait a minute, do you mean blessed as in divine favor? Like God has put his hand on you and done something to you? Or do you mean blessed as in a state of happiness, a state of flourishing? And in other languages, those two ideas are, are separated. And Jonathan Pennington says that in, in, the, in, the, in Persian, in Chinese, in Spanish, in French, in German, all of those languages have two words to describe what we mean by blessed. They have two words. It helps them give clarity. He says that in Latin, it's beatus is for uh, a divine, uh, is is for a state of happiness, but um, benedictus is for divine approval. He says there's two words in Greek, there's two words in Hebrew, that all of these other languages are giving us two words. And one of them is saying you have divine approval, meaning that God has acted upon you in some extraordinary way. The other one means your life is good, your life is whole, your life is flourishing, that those are separate ideas. And so here's what I want you to hear, and it might feel a little controversial. Makarios is not divine approval. Makarios is talking about the fact that your life is full, that your life is flourishing, that, that it's working out, that it's, 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 going, it's going well. And what I think is helpful about making that distinction is it helps us realize that Jesus cares about your happiness. Like Jesus cares about your joy. Jesus cares about how you navigate day in and day out. Jesus is not blind to that. Jesus doesn't just say grin and bear it. He doesn't just say grunt through it. He actually, he actually cares about your joy. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews that says, do you want to know why Jesus endured the cross? For the joy that was set before him. He, he, he actually, he cares about this. God created us as emotional beings and God does not ask us to just stuff our emotions. He, he, he cares about that. And so when we, when we make that distinction between these words, I think it helps us realize that what Jesus is talking about is not a divine stamp of approval. In other words, makarios does not equal divine stamp of approval. Makarios equals flourishing or a full life. Another word that you could associate with this is the word shalom or wholeness. And if you look at that idea of makarios as a whole life, a full life, a flourishing life, a happy life, that kind of raises some haunting questions, I think, doesn't it? Questions like, what is this life for? How is it supposed to work? Why are so few people happy? How are we supposed to navigate a world that is so full of brokenness? I mean, look, our world has a ton of good things. But have you noticed that most of those good things are incredibly fragile? Do you notice how how easily they slip out of your hands? Do you realize how easily they are lost? 
how quickly tragedy strikes, how quickly a diagnosis comes that you didn't see coming, they never last. It brings to mind the question, is this all there is? You know, there's a, an actor named Heath Ledger, and he was in the movie The Patriot, but he's probably best known for being the Joker in the Batman movie called The Dark Knight. He's a good-looking guy, young, talented, rich, should have been on top of the world, but it was not working. His life was not working. Listen to what he said one time. He said, everyone you meet is always asking if you have a career, if you're married, if you own a house, as if it's some kind of grocery list. But no one ever asks you if you are happy. You know, a few years after he said this, Heath Ledger died in 2008. Heath Ledger died. And he died of an accidental overdose. That's what the toxicology report said. It was an accidental overdose. But when he died, he died with six prescription drugs in his system at the exact same time. He was a guy who was searching. From a human perspective, he had all the stuff. He had all the stuff that we would think makes a good life. He has all those resources, many of the resources that, uh, that we won't ever touch. Most of us in this room will never touch the stuff that Heath Ledger had. And we look at it like, Heath, why aren't you happy? And Heath says, it can't do it. This stuff can't bring it. It can't get me there. And he was trying to fix his life with, with, uh, with drugs, and he died. You know, as we think about this, every great teacher has their vision for the good life, for the full life, how to find happiness. You know, Plato had his vision. Marcus Aurelius had his. Alexander Hamilton had his. Walt Whitman had his. Oprah has hers. Jordan Peterson has his. The Kardashians have theirs. TikTok is full of this. All kinds of declarations and teachings of this is the good life. This is the whole life. This is the full life. Let me give you an example of, of how this could apply. Some of you might know the actor or the, uh, the character Don Draper. Uh, he's from a, a TV show from a few decades ago. I'm getting old now. Uh, but it's called Mad Men. And uh, I, I actually I, uh, found that show to be an incredibly helpful cultural uh, consideration uh, to, to navigate how, how these individuals tried to figure out, figure out their life. Uh, but it was based on... Uh, advertising executives and their offices were on Madison Avenue. This is a historical fact. Uh, Madison Avenue was known as for its advertising. And so Madison mad back then it was almost all men. So mad men, these, these account executives, these uh, advertising executives, and they lived really hard lives. I mean, like they went hard. Uh, they were always whining and dining these huge clients trying to land large deals uh, out late at restaurants, buying drinks, drinking drinks, uh, try, trying to, 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 to live, live the life and to look the part. And they were always trying to pitch the next pitch to the next client. And Don Draper is the lead actor in that show. <clears throat> and early in the show, he says, uh, to, to in, in, in one scene, he says, advertising is based on one thing, happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams with reassurance that whatever you're doing is okay. You are okay. 
That's what Don Draper says is, is happiness. But a few seasons go by, and Don Draper's life is not getting better. It's getting worse. It's getting far more complicated and far farther and farther from happiness. So a few seasons into Mad Men, Don Draper has somewhat of a changed heart. And this is what he says later on in the show. I think season uh, maybe five. He's talking to a client. And he says, what is happiness? It's a moment before you need more happiness. So fleeting. Well, there's a journalist named Sean Collins who back when Mad Men was coming out, he was writing for the online magazine uh, called Wired. And he was doing a recap of every episode. And when this episode got done, this is, this is what Sean Collins wrote. He says, Don Draper is not the only person capable of calling bullcrap. He, he used something more colorful, but uh, he's not the only person capable of calling bullcrap on this endless bait and switch, even as he falls victim to it. There's a philosopher who says, sexual encounters are desired in the same way in which art is desired. Desire is not a biological need. Desire springs from the void at the center of life. End quote from that philosopher. Back to Sean Collins. The drive to fill that void is so powerful that Freud named it the death instinct in light of its self-destructive potential, a potential that Don Draper has demonstrated time and time again. He's tried to fill that void to find the permanent moment of happiness with sex, family, money, respectability, creativity, professional success, and industrial qualities of booze. Sean Collins goes on, and he says, but as Peggy Lee's song, which both started and ended that episode, says, is that all there is? Sean Collins ends by saying this, nothing ever meets expectations because expectations cannot be met. The void cannot be filled. Until Don Draper truly comes to terms with this, every handhold he grabs will crumble to dust in his hand, forcing him to reach out again and again and again. Now look, what, what, what is going on there? Sean Collins, that journalist, is trying to help Don Draper by offering Don Draper Sean Collins' worldview. And what is Sean Collins' worldview? What, what is he revealing on the pages of his magazine? It's not a new worldview. His worldview is, in the end, life is meaningless. In the end, it doesn't really matter. And until Don Draper stops expecting the world to matter, he's going to just keep being disappointed. You got to lose the hope. You got to lose the hope that anything good could come from this, that anything meaningful could actually happen here. And as soon as you realize that this is all empty and that we're just going to all die and turn to dust, as soon as, that's, that's sad news. But if you can own it, then you can actually turn back to this life and kind of at least have some fun. You only live once. You can squeeze every drop out of it. This is not a new worldview. The Bible is very familiar with this worldview. In the book of Ecclesiastes, this is how the Bible puts it. Let's eat and let's drink and let's be merry because tomorrow we die. Meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. It's all empty. There's nothing to this life. That's how this journalist is trying to help Don Draper, who is chasing everything he can chase, 
to try to find happiness. Well, I did not know that Peggy Lee song. So I looked up that Peggy Lee song. And it was, uh, it's from 1969. And it is titled, Is That All There Is? And here's some of the lyrics from her song. She says, is that all there is? Because if that's all there is, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. Now, Peggy Lou, in the middle of her song, it's like she's thinking about the listener. And she says, you might be saying to yourselves, if that is really what she believes, then why doesn't she just end it all? Peggy Lee's answer? Oh, no, not me. I'm not ready for that final disappointment. But when it comes, I'll say, is that all there is? That is an empty, meaningless life. It's all meaningless. It's all empty. Peggy Lee, Heath Ledger, Don Draper. You know, maybe your neighbor. Have you, have you seen the movie A Man Named Otto with Tom Hanks in it? I, I, I won't uh, ruin the whole thing if you haven't seen it, but it is an incredibly moving movie. Uh, he is, uh, he, he's a single guy, and he is an older guy, and he's going to commit suicide. And he has kind of some annoying neighbors that won't leave him alone. And they keep knocking on his door and bringing him uh, Mexican food. And every time they knock on the door, they interrupt his effort to kill himself. He's trying to take his life because he doesn't think there's anything worth living for. And these neighbors are knocking on his door. And along with all the humor, if you pause and just think about what's happening, you realize that there are people in the world like that right now. Your, your neighbor might be in that situation right now where they have no reason to live. They can't imagine a reason to keep going. But an annoying neighbor knocking on their door and bringing them some Mexican food starts to shine some light in there. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's your family member. You know, maybe it's you. This sense of feeling like the world is empty, that it's meaningless, is more common than many of us want to believe. Let me give you some takeaways from this, this, uh, this content here. This world can feel so empty. Jesus is attacking that head on. Two takeaways. First, Jesus really is saying that this is the good life. That these, these, these beatitudes, the, the, the makarios, the, 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 this sense of flourishing, he really is saying that this is the good life. He's not saying it's divine approval. He's saying that if, you, if you'll walk in this way, if you'll, that, that's the good life. Go after it. Go do this. Live it out. It really is the good life. It's going to surprise you. It's going to shock you, actually. Because you know, Dr. Jonathan Pennington says this, that what the Beatitudes tell us is that the door to happiness is very, very low, and it's cross-shaped. Meaning that Jesus, in his declaration, he sits down and says, let me tell you what the good life is. Let me tell you how you can find happiness. Look at, the, look at the Beatitudes. They're all negative. All but one are negative. Now, if you've been for, in church for a long time, you might think some of these things sound, sound positive, but they are not positive. L listen to them. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not the rich in spirit. He's talking poverty. Poverty of spirit. Second, those who mourn, he doesn't say those who are clicking their heels. He says those who are experiencing some level of sadness, a recognition of what's going on in the world. 
Third, he references hunger and thirst. Not fullness and satiated. He says those who are hungry and thirsty. Merciful. If you have to give someone mercy, that means that they've wronged you. Peacemakers. That means that there isn't peace and you have to fix peace. You see, these are all, it's, a, it's an upside down kingdom. Jesus is saying the way that life works with me is going to shock you. You're going to have to get low. But if you're willing to get low, guess what? There's a door down there. It's shaped like a cross. And if you're willing to crawl through it, you're, you're going to find happiness there. You're going to find a full life there. Everything in our culture says it's not true. And Jesus says, oh, yes, it is. Come down here. James and Peter both repeat that the idea that God offers is that he lifts up the humble and he puts down the proud. Jesus says this is the road to happiness and he's not backing off of it. He is literally saying, live your life like this. Now you say, how do I know if it's true? You got to try it. You got to try it. Listen, the following of Jesus is most experienced in the doing. You, you, you got, you, it, this is true of so many things. It's in, it's in the doing that you actually really know it. You can intellectually say, um, blessed are the mourn, those who mourn. But it's actually letting your heart break. It's actually in the morning where you begin to experience what Jesus is talking about. If you want to experience what Jesus is talking about, you got to step out and follow him. You can't just intellectually agree with the Beatitudes. You actually have to live that way. You know, Jesus loves this phrase, come and see. And that's what he's saying. You don't believe me? Come live like that. Come live like a person who gives mercy generously. Come live like a person who makes the peace. Come live like a person who, who mourns. Come and see. The second takeaway is that as much as it's true that Jesus is painting for us the good life, it is the path to happiness. There is something even more fundamental. You see, Jesus is a teacher. He's a phenomenal teacher. But he's not just a teacher. He's also the Savior. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Savior of you. He is the Savior of me. That's exactly what the message of this gospel that Matthew writes is about. He came to save the world, to make everything right, to wipe away all sin and death, this teacher, Jesus, in just a few years after he reads the, or pre preaches this sermon, is going to go to the cross and conquer sin and Satan and death and bring life to us. He, he's going to do the only thing that we actually could never do. He, he's going to um, bring the whole world and raise it to life. He's actually going to make the whole place new through the power of the Spirit. And if you think about that, just think about that. If we were just left with the Sermon on the Mount or just the Beatitudes, how would that go in here? We roll out the list of things and we're supposed to go do them. And it's, it's the good life. It's the happy life. Well, we would leave and some in this room would do that really, really well. You would kind of ace the test. You'd be like, wow, Jesus is right. When you live a life of mercy and you live a, a life of, 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 of peace, like, this, is, this is the good life. Some of us would be so-so. We do some of them okay, some of them not so okay. And then some of us would be terrible at it. We would just fail miserably. And that would be it. That, that's, that's all we get. That's all there is. But you see, G Jesus provided a rescue 
even for those who are not full of happiness. Jesus provided a rescue even for those who are not flourishing. Do you you see the, the, the message of the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus saves people who hate the Sermon on the Mount, who are living opposite of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is here to rescue sinners and rescue people whose lives are broken, who are the furthest thing from full, who are the furthest thing from shalom, who are the furthest thing from flourishing. And the point of the Gospel of Matthew is that that's actually the most important news that you'll ever be exposed to in your life. Now listen, that doesn't mean that the Sermon on the Mount isn't important, and it doesn't mean that it isn't Jesus saying this is the road to the good life. But what it's inviting us into is that there's something even deeper than that. There's something more fundamental than that. And it is the life that comes through the person and work of Jesus on our behalf through resurrection power. This is why. This is why we eat the bread and drink the cup every single Sunday. You see that the, the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is this invitation to happiness. This, it's an invitation to what we can go do, how we can go navigate the world. But the message of the gospel is actually the divine blessing. It's the divine approval. It's the message of Jesus coming to rescue us in spite of ourselves. And it's the good news that we celebrate every day. So come, if you're a Christian, man, this meal makes all the sense in the world, this bread and this cup. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to stay where you're at. And instead of receiving these elements, receive Christ. There'll be some prayers on the, on the screen behind me. Uh, and, uh, and we invite you to consider those words. If our service will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for this, uh, this text. And we thank you for Jesus, who actually cares about the journey uh, on the dirt of this earth. He cares about what this day uh, is experienced as. God, he cares about our neighbors, and he cares about our emotional life. He cares about reconciliation. He cares about mercy. God, we, we, we thank you that he's laying out a map of how to navigate this complicated world. God, it's a hard world to live in, and we thank you for that. We, we want to we live in light of it. But God, we thank you that there's something even richer and deeper, something even more fundamental, that life can be had through faith in Jesus Christ, that our hearts can actually go from dead to alive, and that we don't have to polish ourselves up. We don't have to earn it. We could never earn it. We thank you that Jesus stands in our place.